the way we read the Bible can affect what we get from the Bible. And since there are five ways to read the Bible, there are five ways to feast on what the Bible offers. Find out more in today's episode. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review five models of scripture by Mark Reasoner. 311 pages published by Eltmans in August 2021. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $19.17 and it was free, but free last month uh, via Logos. If you missed the free book from last month, uh, shame on you, but you can always make up for it by getting this month's free book from Logos and also from Faith Life. I'll tell you more about it at the end of the review. It has been said, uh, seminary is where faith goes to die. There, the Bible ceases to become a fount of comfort and it becomes a document to dissect. Take heart. Mark Reasoner has written today's book to help everyone understand the five models of Scripture so that your faith can be nourished. And when I say everyone... I am thinking of Protestants, Roman Catholics, and Orthodox. Mark Reasoner got his MDiv and MA in New Testament from an evangelical Protestant seminary. Then, tragically or fortunately, depending on where you stand, he became a Roman Catholic and is now teaching scripture to undergraduates at the Roman Catholic University. Reasoner writes, I do my best to respect readers' diverse ecclesiastical affiliations. It would have been easier to write this book simply for Catholic seminarians, but scripture is too sumptuous a feast to limit a book like this to one branch of the family. Later he writes, Yes, I actually regard the Catholic hermeneutic in which the Catholic Church's teaching office provides the boundaries and referees on the field of exegesis as preferable to the hermeneutic popularized by the Anabaptists during the Reformation, in which the individual believer marks the boundaries and functions as both player and referee. I also regard the Catholic hermeneutic with its millennia of tradition and conversations across time and cultures as preferable to approaches that have selected a single individual or limited body of believers as the arbiters of exegesis. And so there will be places where I point out the ecclesiastical stakes in a given approach to scripture. It is better to name the elephant in the room than to proceed as if the church question does not matter in exegesis. End quote. Now that is a big elephant and one that jumps up every so often in this book. We will talk more about it in the second half of this review. This is my first Roman Catholic book review and I just generally don't come across them in my reading radar. And I'm happy to read so that I know what they believe uh, straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> For example, we know that the Roman Catholic Bibles have extra books, the Apocrypha. Protestants have removed them because they are not inspired. Roman Catholics and Orthodox also know that they are not inspired but they have chosen to leave them in. Why? 
Mark Reasoner goes through the history of the biblical canon in chapter 1, how the early church dealt with the Apocrypha, and amongst his many points, he also notes how a familiarity with the fantastic, fictive elements, which is uh, if can you which you can find in some of the apocrypha books. Now, how these fantastic, fictive elements helps readers to I quote, identify more non-historical elements in other narratives, such as the narrative of Jonah, and the great fish or various episodes within the book of Daniel, end quote. Did you get that? Now we will come back to what Reasoner calls fantastic and fictive elements in the Bible later. Um, after explaining what is the Bible canon, Reasoner turns to the matter of biblical inspiration. And I like how he explains what biblical inspiration means for the Protestant. He was one before, the Catholic, who he is now, and the Orthodox. Reasoner wants to unite all Bible readers together. Is he successful? There are good reasons to be hopeful. For having established what is the canon and inspiration from the perspective of Roman Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, we then go into the essence of the book, the five models of Scripture, which are first, documents, two, stories, three, prayers, four, laws, and fifth, the oracles model. Now, without knowing it, you are actually employing one of these models every time you read the Bible. And Reasoner is very helpful to tell you which model you are using. I quote, You know that someone is using the documents model when they seek to identify and argue that a specific human authored a book of the Bible. When they emphasize that eyewitness testimony is behind a given book of the Bible, when they seek to discover and prove the dates when a given book of the Bible was written or edited, when they seek to discover and prove what sources were used in the composition of a biblical book, when they seek to harmonize Scripture's differing accounts of the same event. End quote. Wait a minute, isn't that how everyone reads the Bible? No. <laughs> That's how scholars and those who enjoy scholarly writing uh, read the Bible. After all, you, if you think about it, children read the Bible as a story. And not just children, but adults too. When you read the Bible as stories, which is the second model, you pay attention to the plot or the literary style, even if what you are reading is not a story. What do I mean by that? The models Reasoner describes in his book are not to be confused with genres. Genres are categories of literature. They are fixed. Genesis is narrative, mostly. It is not poetry. Psalms is poetry. It is not narrative. So these are fixed categories, depend, depending on what you are reading. Reasoner's models are about the way you read, while genres are about what you read. Adopting a stories model, you can read Psalms, as part of the bigger story of Israel's relationship with God. The third model makes this uh, clearer. As you and I both know, everything in the Bible can be turned into prayer. If you read the Bible with that frame of mind, then you are using Reasoner's third model, the prayer model. You are not asking who wrote Psalms, when and where, 
that would be using the documents model, nor are you wondering what is the plot. That's the stories model. But rather you read the Bible, you read the Psalms, in order to pray, to evoke the gift of God's revelation, to touch the divine. Next is the fourth model, the laws model. Here you think about what is right, what is wrong. You look for the moral lesson in what you read. The fifth and final model is oracles, the, what I call the fortune cookie model. You open the Bible and a verse pops up and that verse is the answer to the problem of the day. Yes, it smacks of superstition. It breeds a consumer mentality. Initially, I rejected this model as a valid way to read scripture. But as I read the chapter, Reasoner addresses the abuses of this model. And he also gently corrects the reader by pointing out that we all, at some point, read scripture using the oracle's model. Augustine's life was changed by one verse. You and I have stories of how that perfect verse was the answer in our time of need. I appreciate it when a book changes my mind, especially when it's backed by strong reasoning, as this book is. These five models of scripture chapters are models of clarity. For each chapter, Reasoner starts with a definition and the characteristics and specific applications of the model. If you still fail to understand what these things mean, his examples from the Old Testament and New Testament will clear everything up. Then, he discusses the key issues of the model, then the strengths and limitations of the model, before concluding the chapter with helpful suggestions to, for us to apply. And he does this by making a helpful distinction between the classroom and ministry. But that's only half the book. He then spends a chapter to discuss about literal and spiritual senses, another chapter on sola scriptura, a Roman Catholic speaking about sola scriptura. So much to say here, but I will resist the temptation. And he has another chapter on meta-narratives. There is, surprise, surprise, more than one way to outline the grand story of the Bible. And these are controversial chapters which can easily occupy a whole podcast. The least controversial chapters are the last, chapters 11 and 12. Scripture in Worship and Devotional, that's chapter 11. Uh, sorry, uh, chapter 11 is Scripture in Worship, and chapter 12 is Devotional, Academic, and Professional Uses of Scripture. These are mild chapters in comparison, and most of the time, easily agreeable to all Christians. As he wrote in the introduction, Reasoner did not set out to write a book to defend the Roman Catholic faith, but rather to share different ways of reading the Bible in order to enrich all Christians. Nevertheless, he does not shy away from asserting Roman Catholic views in comparison to Protestants. I actually wonder whether does his interpretation of certain verses reflect the official Roman Catholic view, or even whether his views are within the boundaries of acceptable Roman Catholic thought. Reasoner says that there is no big fish in Jonah, that the events in Daniel, some of them, are fictional, and that there was no quest, conquest of Canaan, 
and the list goes on. Now let me pick an easy one for us to dismiss. Reasoner empathizes with Oregon's dilemma with Matthew 5.39, which reads, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You might be familiar with the dilemma. Basically, it's saying that most people are right-handers. So if I slap you, the slap would land on the left cheek, not on the right. But the scripture says the right cheek. So Oregon then concludes that this means the command was not meant to be taken literally. It was supposed to be interpreted spiritually. But let me ask you, won't it be easier to interpret the slap as a backhand slap? Or that Jesus was maybe looking at the left-hander when he was preaching? Or maybe people that time used their left hand because they sneered, they scorned. You don't even deserve to be slapped by my right hand. Why should we take this command in the spiritual sense when the rest of the sermon is understood in the literal sense? There are better explanations, in my humble opinion. At another point of the book, Reasoner writes, I quote, But once one has learned of some of the historical questions behind Scripture, such as the lack of any evidence for camels in the land of Canaan during the time of Abraham, the lack of any sign of military conquest of Canaan in the Iron Age, or the fact that Quirinius was not governor of Syria when Jesus was born, uh, referencing Luke 2 verse 2, then it is difficult to read the Bible simply as a compilation of time capsules. Indeed, if we are to love God with all our minds, then for those of us who have studied the Bible academically, we must read it both as scriptural time capsules and as artifacts of others' faith. If we turn our minds off and seek to read it only as scriptural time capsules, we are not fully loving God with our minds. End quote. It seems to me that in reasoner's mind, this is the best way to handle the difficulties in the Bible. If it doesn't make sense, just change the way we read it. The document's model does not fit, so let us read it with a story's model, or the law's model, or a oracle's model. But Luke, in his gospel, claims that, it, that he is writing an accurate historical record. We can't just ignore his claims, can we? And consider that so many seemingly historical inaccuracies in the Bible were later proven to be true. Archaeologists dig up pots, jugs and bulas. A shepherd boy throws some stones into a cave and together they silence Bible skeptics worldwide. Looking at my long list of disagreements with Reasoner, and looking at the short time I have in this podcast, how are we to resolve this? The best way is to refer to the Roman Catholic Church, according to Reasoner. Listen to this. The Council of Trent responds to Protestant developments and so begins its section on Scripture with an insistence that the gospel Christ proclaimed, described as the source of all saving truth and rule of conduct, is contained in the written books and unwritten traditions that have come down to us having been received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself. Thus, there is an emphasis that the inspiration of Scripture is not sufficient as a guide to all truth, but is complemented by the traditions that have come down to us. 
Trent also emphasized the significance of reading scripture with the church instead of trying to interpret it on one's own in ways that depart from what the church, including the church fathers, has taught. End quote. To me, this begs the question, if, a hypothetical if, a church father or a pope flatly dismisses reasoner's interpretation for the verses that uh, I listed, what will reasoner do? Does he meekly submit to tradition, even though these people in the past never thought of or considered reasoner's points? Or does reasoner hold on to his convictions that depart from what the church, including the church fathers, have taught? Now, come on. Did the early church believe that the conquest of Canaan was fiction? Or that Jonah's big fish was a fisherman's exaggeration? designed for spiritual effects. Even if there were some church fathers who questioned the literal sense, there are church fathers who strongly affirm the literal sense. So doesn't that suggest something? Reasoner uh, at some point mentions that everyone, including Protestants, have their own body of authority, their own traditions and church fathers to appeal to. Yes, that is true. But Protestants are also brought up to believe that if any of our institutions, any of our traditions or our uh, favorite uh, author or church father got it wrong, then they are wrong. Is that something that the Roman Catholics can say? that their popes are not infallible? Although reasoner, reasoner does not say so in this book, I think Roman Catholics believe so. I think that Roman Catholics believe that the popes are infallible, and they have a reason to believe that people in the past got things perfectly right. After all, they were wise enough to assemble the Bible together. Reasoner writes, I quote, it was the church that selected and canonized scripture, and as we will see in the Sola Scriptura chapter, the church is necessary for guiding our reading of scripture. Catholic and Orthodox theologians are more likely to include the church in their discussion of the origin of scripture's authority. They emphasize that it is the church that has recognized scripture as inspired and therefore invested it with authority. This leads to a more tradition-conscious way of reading scripture. If one views scripture as simply falling out of heaven, there is more of a tendency to use one interpretation of it as the only legitimate interpretation which all people must heed. If one, by contrast, views scripture as the church's book, one will not accept only one interpretation as legitimate until one has considered how the tradition has handled the passage. Both Catholic and Orthodox churches view scripture as the creation of the church. Let me just repeat that. Both Catholic and Orthodox churches view Scripture as the creation of the church. In their consciousness, Scripture was composed by, collected by, and canonized by the church. Protestants, by contrast, are more prone to treat God's Word as its own category, closer to the doctrine of God and not inside the doctrine of the church. I don't know about you, but it sounds more like damning words, um, self-incriminating, I think. Um, but I, I, let me just continue on. Um, later, Reasoner writes, I quote, 
Catholic and Orthodox theologians prioritize the Church over Scripture, emphasizing that this priority occurs in history and in logic. By history, I mean that the fact that the Church came into being first and then, centuries later, defined its canon of Scripture. By logic, I mean the idea that the text of Scripture only functions as Scripture when it is read and interpreted within the church. End quote. So much to say and so little time to say it. In response, um, I quote Charles Spurgeon, uh, who said, The church does not determine what the Bible teaches. The Bible determines what the church must teach. To illustrate, okay, because this is a fairly complex topic, and one which I think uh, reasoner spends sufficient amount of time that becomes the foundation of a lot of what he writes, that I think it's worth just spending a bit of time addressing it. Okay, the elephant in the room. To illustrate this uh, church and scripture puzzle, I ask that you imagine in front of you a pile of jigsaw puzzle pieces. A big, glorious mess. And your job is to assemble the puzzle, to make the final picture. But just to let you know, there are some pieces that don't actually belong there. So you set to work. And given some time, you solve the puzzle. And you have a very nice picture in the end. You deserve some credit for solving the puzzle. But you could only solve it because you recognize the color, the lines, and how each piece connects to one another. So that you can assemble the whole thing, right? So the key to assembling the puzzle is that there must be a final picture before you even started. Correct? Now imagine that there was another guy who grew wary of solving the puzzle. He decides, oh, Darn it, I, I just don't understand how this thing works. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to glue the pieces together. <laughs> doesn't matter if the picture doesn't make sense, a cat's head on a fish's body, who cares? Just as long as I get something that fits into that picture frame. At the end, he declares, this is the final picture because I got it to fit into the frame. Now, if you believe that people can be smart enough, wise enough, to put together the Holy Word of God, uh, to create the scripture, as uh, one author puts it, then of course, it is reasonable to give weight to tradition, because people are wise enough. But if you believe that God first established the Bible, and that it is a miracle of the first order, that the early church recognized the pieces for what they were, and it is the same Holy Spirit wrought miracle that got us to recognize the word for what it is, then you should also believe that priority goes to that shining beacon of truth, namely scripture, not the church. And if so, you and I would be less inclined to see the church and tradition as infallible or even as helpful as some people do. At this point, you might ask, how did, we, how did this discussion actually come to this point? And we started in the beginning with the problem that people, some people only knew how to read the Bible in one way, 
and thus they are not able to get the full nourishment the Bible offers. Reasoner gives us five models with some discussions on how to read the Bible. Now, alongside the good points he makes, he also gives what I think are bad interpretations. And I make a list. He then says that the interpretations, which one is right, should be subject to church and tradition. I say, oh dear, we have a problem. <laughs> he then says that it is the church who established the Bible. And I say, ah, now I understand why everything is wrong. Would this be a better book if Reasoner wrote it without these uh, Roman Catholic hot takes? Because anybody could have written a book on the five models of Scripture and gave it a different spin. Instead of saying we should consider changing the model when things don't make sense, we could say let's consider the genre of the book. Does the genre itself demand that we take it as a historical document? By the way, this book really needs a discussion on literary genre and the relationship with models, how we interpret the scripture. Instead of saying, this doesn't make sense, let us read this verse allegorically or spiritually, just as the church fathers did before, we could say, have we dug deep enough? Are we humble enough to wait? For science, history, linguistics, and divine intervention have made many Bible skeptics eat humble pie. And I really don't think we should rush to uh, conclude when there may be reasons, stronger reasons, to take it literally. And those reasons are established within the genre itself. I repeat myself. In conclusion, Mark Reasoner's book is great as an introduction to the five models of scripture. There's definitely things that is worth thinking about in this book. He seeks to unite um, all of us who love the Bible, but the thoughtful Protestant will meet resistance. What I try to do in today's review is to identify the root cause of this resistance. It's ironic that the reason we differ so much is ultimately we hold to a different model of scripture. This is a Reading and Readers review of Five Models of Scripture by Mark Reasoner, 311 pages published by Eltmans in August 2021. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $19.17 and it was free last month via Logos. But if you missed that deal, then pay attention because for the month of June, the Logos free book is The Consequences of Ideas, Understanding the Concepts that Shape Our World by R.C. Sproul. And in Faith Life, if you go to their website, their free book for June is Bonhoeffer Speaks Today, Following Jesus at All Costs by Mark Devin. I'm a big fan of Sproul. I'm a big fan of Bonhoeffer. So I really hope I can review these books before the deal ends. But really, why should you take that risk? Just go get the book now and figure out later whether you will actually read it. Go on, this episode is finished so that you can get those free books. Bye-bye.